Thank you very much, Amos. Amos is one of our elders here and a strong and faithful and reliable young man. It's almost all true. Really grateful for you, Amos, and your wife, Andrea, hanging out next to you. Well, welcome to uh, part four or five of a series we're calling Bigger, our series to kick off 2018. And this series is a series that I'm teaching because I believe that we all, in our best moments, have a view of our future that's bigger than our present and our past. When we're not discouraged or upset or too stressed, we can verbalize, usually, something we hope will be better about our future and bigger. And what I believe is happening for all of us as well is that underneath our vision of bigger are also some assumptions about how the world works and some assumptions about how we're going to achieve bigger based on a whole number of things. And if you've been with us for any number of weeks yet, you know that what I've said about some of our assumptions is that we all have assumptions about God, ourselves, others, how we should use our influence and how we should see future success. And this has served as a template for this series, that we all have assumptions about God. And in week one, we talked about an assumption about God. And in this series, we've gone through prayers in the Bible to help us get underneath what some of our hidden assumptions might be. And so in week one, we looked at the Lord's Prayer and said that we can see God as our Father, as a heavenly dad, if you will, because that's how Jesus encouraged us to pray, using that Hebrew word Abba for that endearing Father uh, who, who loves us no matter what. In week two, we looked at the assumptions we have about ourselves and looked at the legacy of King David, who was um, an adulterer and a murderer. And yet his legacy is a great one. Why? Because of the prayer in Psalm 51, we see a man who turns his brokenness into a a life of fullness so that we still name our kids David today because of him and his great name. It's endured despite all the pain and brokenness that he caused. And so some of us have assumptions about ourselves in which we're broken and failed, and we talked about that in the prayer in Psalm 51. Last week we talked about others and this love that we have for people around us who are closest to us and the desire to see especially our children and the next generation succeed well. We looked at a prayer in Philippians chapter 1 in which Paul prayed this prayer for the people in Philippi, that they would grow in their love and affection for one another deeply, and that that love would also help them make great decisions. And we prayed that prayer and looked at that prayer. This morning, we're going to look at another prayer. We're going to look at a prayer that has to do with how we should use our influence. How we should use our influence will lead to the next statement there, and that is how we should see our future success. And here's what I think for all of us, that we all have influence. And again, given our best days, we're going to want to use our influence to see it work out for good for those around us and actually have our influence grow. Now, there's something funny, though, that we have to talk about. It may seem weird, but there's something funny that we have to talk about if we're going to talk about influence and your influence and my influence. And that is this strange reality that I believe may be true for some of you and I will say is true for me. And that is, before we talk about a growing influence, we have to talk about a fear that we all have, I believe. And it's this fear, believe it or not, of success. Now, I don't know if you ever processed it this way before, but there is such a thing as a fear of actually being successful, of actually doing the things that you set out to do. Psychologists have identified this fear and said that there's many things underneath it, but I'm just going to highlight six of them this morning, and I want to see if you see yourself in any of these. Hey, if you have the fear of success, you sometimes have this feeling of boy, I'm afraid that I'll be successful because I don't really want the spotlight. I don't know if you ever felt that way. You know, if I actually am successful, if I become the best on the team, if I become the one who is the leading voice in our company, if I become a mom who actually changes from the way that my parents were, my parents and family are going to start looking at me, and I'm going to become 
someone who's noticed. I don't really want to be the one who's noticed. I don't really want the spotlight. I'm afraid. What will happen if I'm actually successful in doing the things that I really deep down want to do? There's a fear of the spotlight. There's also this fear and this recognition that with success comes the critics. If you're successful and people ask you, how do you run your business that way? How is it that you donate so much? How is it that you have a thriving business when that market, everyone else is failing and you're growing? What in the world is going on? Oh, you're doing it that way. (laughs) Oh, you must be cutting that corner, right? How is it that you're the only one who's succeeding there when everyone else is not? Oh, look at what they're doing. If you remember um, me sharing before, Gary McIntosh wrote a book, and in there he talked about the, the law of the whale in leadership. Remember that uh, law of the whale? And that is this. When you rise to the surface and blow, you will be harpooned. Okay? That's the law of the whale in leadership. When you rise up and say, this is the way that's going to be, this is the way we should go, you make yourself a target. And if you've ever thought about this, you know it can be true for you. There's a fear of the critic if you are actually successful at changing something. You're inviting the critic to come into your life. For some of us, we might ask this question, what if I can't deliver in the moment? You ever ask this question of yourself? What if in the moment, when I'm leading my convention, when I'm speaking and someone asks a question, what if I'm asked to teach and someone in the class asks a question and I can't answer? What if I can't deliver in the moment? What if I become one of the best on the team? I'm picked to you know, hit the game-winning shot or I, I line up to hit the PK in overtime and I miss it. Like, What if I can't deliver in the moment? What if I can't do that? It's a fear. It's a fear of failure in the moment. Another question is this. What if I don't like what I become? You ever look at quote-unquote successful people, whatever that means to you? People who have more money, maybe people have more relationships, and you think, man, they had to sell their soul to get there, right? Like now they're, now they're aloof, right? Now they're not connected to their, their heritage and their family, and now they're, they're people who no one wants to be around them, right? And they're just in it for the love of money. I mean, now look at what they drive, right? Look at how they're dressed. Like clearly they've kind of sold their soul to something. And I'm afraid of becoming someone that I see over there. Part of the fear of success. How about this? I may not have the time to do the things that I like to do now. If you ever thought this, this is part of the fear of success, that I actually enjoy my vacations the way they are. I enjoy my spare time the way that it is. I enjoy my kids the way that they are right now. Like, there's things about my current schedule that I enjoy doing. And if I'm actually successful at becoming better at being a mom, a dad, a husband, a parent, business leader, employer, in school, and work, and whatever it might be, if I'm actually successful... Things are going to have to change, which leads to this last one, that is this, that I don't actually want the change that comes with success. Like, I don't actually want the change that will come with success, because something will have to change, because success is a change, both from mediocrity and certainly from failure. And with that change will come all kinds of things that you and I may not actually want. If you find yourself as someone who regularly procrastinates, or someone who is regularly indecisive, those things might masquerade the real issue in your life, which might be actually, I'm afraid that I might actually be successful if I give my heart fully to this, whatever the this is for you. This is a reality that we have to discuss when we think about how the Christian faith is expressed. So I want to ask this question this morning. Should Christians aim for success or for increasing influence? Should Christians aim for that? Like, should this be a good and godly thing? If you're someone who is a Christian, 
we have to ask this question, should my faith drive me to want success and a growing influence? It's a fair question and the right one that we have to ask. And I think one of the issues we have to look at is, if you've grown up in the church, and if you haven't, that's totally fine. By the way, if you consider yourself not a Christian here this morning, we are glad you are here. And what I have to say this morning has to do especially for Christians. And you get to listen on the outside and figure out, do I like what is being said or not? But this is especially true for people who say, Jesus is my Savior, I'm following him. For those people this morning, we have to ask this question, should Christians aim for success or for increasing influence? I remember, and I don't know about your experience, but I remember mine. I know my experience is this. The character of Moses in the Old Testament is held up almost as an ideal, humble leader who follows, even though he didn't want to be the mouthpiece of God. Now, I'm telling, I'm alluding to a story that some of you may not know, and so I want to clear that up. Moses was asked to go speak on behalf of God to the leaders of Egypt on behalf of the nation of Israel, to which Moses said, like, I'm not a good speaker. I'm going to stutter when I get up there. I don't think so. But he went anyway, and many Christian leaders throughout history have kind of held Moses up and said, listen, this is, in a way, how we should be. Be humble. Like, don't pursue this level of greatness that Moses had. Just let God bring it to you. And just be willing. If he were to come to you and ask you to increase your influence, just be like, God, I guess if you want me to, I'm ready. What it creates is an incredible passivity within your Christian faith. It creates an incredible um, drawdown of your energy and your passion, just waiting for God to be the one to initiate something incredible in your life. And I would argue that that character trait in Moses is not something that we should emulate. That in fact, God got so frustrated with Moses that he finally just said, fine, like I'll send to Aaron if you need to get it done, but get off your rear end and get going. Like I wanted you to say yes first. I don't want this to be a model for everybody. When I look in the New Testament and Jesus says, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all nations, teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Make disciples of all people. We have to ask, if we have a global commission, which goes into every town, every city, every industry, every aspect of how people function, education, social service, the medical community, construction business, every sector of how people work. And we are to take the gospel into all that. We have to ask, should Christians desire increasing influence? And it seems foolish to suggest otherwise. And I want to offer to you this idea, and I want you to judge this here this morning. And that is, we must consider whether an essential part of living the Christian faith is to desire growing influence. I want to put this proposition out to you, and I want you to be the judge by the time we're done here this morning, whether or not an essential, not a corollary or complementary, but whether an essential part of your faith, if you're a Christian, is to actually desire growing influence. I want you to consider it, that it isn't just secondary, it isn't out there, it isn't for somebody else, but you, you, you. Is this an essential part of the Christian faith, that you should desire growing influence? influence. Not just maybe someday if it comes, God, I'm willing, but actually step into growing influence. Now, if you live in America, which I think most of you do if you're here, this can go off the rails in a hurry. 
in America especially, an incredibly prosperous nation that we are right now, this can go off the rails in a hurry. And I will tell you, there can be all kinds of weird and strange theological things that people say. People can claim things like health, wealth, and prosperity and then try to assign God to it and say, if you have enough faith, things will be incredible in your life. That's foolishness. That's just not biblical. It's ridiculous. We need to be clear on our thinking about what we mean by increasing influence. And I want to try to clear that up this morning. So this morning, I want to take you to a small prayer in the Old Testament. And then I also this morning uniquely want to invite another speaker to this platform. Now, he's dead, so it might be a little awkward. So what I'm going to do is speak for him. Uh, back in the 1800s, there was a speaker who spoke on the very topic that I'm going to address this morning. And I want to invite his words to our generation today so that we learn from someone outside of this world right now who had something incredible to say about this. So that's a little unique part that's coming in just a few minutes. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bible, if you have it, to the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew around you, or you can look it up on your phone or your tablet, whatever you've got, to the book of First Chronicles. First Chronicles is um, before Second Chronicles. Here you go. You're welcome about that. You're going to find it... Um, Fairly, uh, well, it's kind of in the middle, maybe the left of the middle in your Old Testament. First Chronicles chapter 4. Um, it is rare that you will find yourself in First Chronicles for any length of time by mistake. Because when you get there, you realize these are a long list of names of people. And most of us can't pronounce them, A, and find little value in their presence in the Bible. And I understand that. I understand that. Uh, but in the middle of First Chronicles chapter 4, kind of at the beginning of that, but in the middle of this list of names, there is a little story, a small little two-verse segment that we're going to pop out and look at. We're going to look at this incredible prayer of a man named Jabez. And Jabez had this prayer, and this is the only place, by the way, in the entire Bible where we can get any insight on who Jabez is. It's confusing. We don't know the totality of his history, but he shows up here. So if you're in First Chronicles, look at First Chronicles 4, verses 9 and 10 with me. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother had named him Jabez, saying, I gave birth to him in pain. And Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. All right. And that's all we know. This is all we know about Jabez. It's all we know about his prayer. Some of you, if you've been in the Christian world for a little while, you know that there's a gentleman named Bruce Wilkinson wrote a book called The Prayer of Jabez, what became a bestseller. There's a lot of good things in that book, a lot of things I'd like to talk to Bruce about if he were here, but nonetheless, that's maybe part of your history. You may know about that. Good, good little read. Um, I want to talk for a minute about what he's actually praying and get underneath it a little bit. Jabez, you see there that his mom named him Jabez. Look at it again, saying at the end of verse 9, I gave birth to him in pain. You should know the name Jabez actually sounds like the Hebrew word for pain. So everywhere Jabez went, when someone said, hey, Jabez, he would hear pain, because that's his name. Now let me ask you this. If you go to school with Jabez, and you're in elementary school with Jabez, if you're picking teams for kickball, you want the kid named Pain on your team or not? If you're picking groups for reading, everyone grab a partner. Who wants to sit with Pain over there? In the corner, because every time, seriously, every time, we just think Jabez is a name. Actually, it's not. It's a character description. It's a description of who he is and the totality of his character. And so every time, 
as a little kid, and this is a real person, growing up, every time he hears his name, he's reminded that he was born in pain and that his mom named him, whether rightly or wrongly, mean mom, good mom, I don't know, we don't know, named him such. And so everywhere he goes, his name is pain. Can you imagine, this might make more sense for us, can you imagine if your parents named you Pigpen? Are you familiar? Peanuts cartoon, right? You got Pigpen in your mind? Got a ball of dust falling him everywhere he goes, right? Right? Now, not, not that you sometimes say to your kids you're acting like Pigpen or your room looks like Pigpen live there, but actually, if you were named Pigpen, perfect name for that kid with dust everywhere, this is in a way what Jabez is like. Like, we understand that it translates into something about who he is, and that is exactly what would have carried with him for the entirety of his life, and yet there's something strange about him as well. Not only does he have this pig pen kind of characteristic that pain is a part of his life, and mom kind of said, you were birthed in pain, I'm going to give you that name, pain. Jabez rose above it. He rose above it from the jump. Look at it in the text again, verse 9. Jabez, pain, was more honorable than his brothers. This kid whose name was Payne, who could have had all the excuse cards in the book for why his life would stink, actually became more honorable than his unnamed brothers. And we still talk about Jabez today. Interesting. And then look at what he prays. Verse 10, Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. Look at this, what Jabez prays for. He actually prays for four things in this prayer. He actually prays for four things. I'm going to put them up here, and then I want to talk about each of them briefly. He prays for four things. Number one, for God to bless him. He asks for the blessing of God. Number two, for God to enlarge his territory. Number three, for God's hand to be with him. And finally, number four, for God to keep him from harm or pain, depending on your translation. I want to spend the most of the time this morning talking about number one, for God to bless him. He asks God to bless him, and it is very important, it's critical for us to understand what in the world this means. When we ask, when we assume God's blessing, and we use that term blessing, we often just think, because we don't always, and I'm guilty as anybody, of not always clarifying in my own mind, what in the world does it mean to ask for God's blessing? What is that? I will often just think by default, well, that must mean the greatest day. Like, I roll out of bed right on time, hit the alarm just right, I'm feeling awesome, I get the morning cup of coffee, do not spill it on the clothes, right? Like, I'm out the door right away, the deal comes through, everything worked well, my kids are happy to see me when I get home, you know, we have an incredible evening together, and, you know, all the worries and stresses of life are gone, and by the way, we're going on vacation next week, and it's, uh, you know, it's awesome, everything's, like, that's a, a blessed life, as if everything you touch turns to gold, as if that's a blessing. And without clarifying it, it can feel like that's what we're asking God for. Like, God, just give me the best day, the best experience, the best family, the, the money that I need, the health that I need. Like, just I pray your blessing. And without thinking critically about that, we can just say, that must be what it means to be blessed by God. Interestingly, what Jabez does is he asks for God's blessing first, not man's. It's a big distinction. What he's saying is, God, whatever you mean by blessing, I'm going to put myself under that. God, I'm going to ask you to bless me. I'm not going to ask man to bless me. Now, I mentioned this other speaker who died a little while ago. I'm talking about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who in the 1850s and into the 60s, uh, but I think it was around late 1850s when he spoke on the prayer of Jabez. 
at Metropolitan Tabernacle in England. And if I could bring Spurgeon out from the grave for a minute, put him on here, number one, that would be weird. But number two, be incredible to hear and see his persona and his presence, an incredibly gifted communicator. And I want to share with you a couple of his thoughts on the prayer of Jabez. And the reason I do this, just so you know, the reason I do this is following even C.S. Lewis's advice when he said, you need to read outside of your generation. You need to read people who have died years ago because it gets you out of the flow of people who are living just in our current day and age, and it gets us thinking differently than people who are our current authors do. Great to read current, but also great to read distant. Spurgeon brings some ideas to the table that are so helpful for me, and together I thought, let's sit at his feet for a minute as he explains some of the misconceptions around blessing. And he's going to use four different categories to say this is what we often think blessing is, money and health and family and things of that nature. So listen as Spurgeon talks for a minute about the first thing that we can misunderstand blessing to be, and that is wealth. He says, One of the first cravings of men's heart is wealth. So universal the desire to gain it that we might almost say it is a natural instinct. How many thought if once they once possessed it, they should be blessed indeed. But there are 10,000 proofs that happiness consists not in the abundance which a man possesseth. Again, 1850s. So many instances are well known to you all that I need not quote any to show that riches are not a blessing indeed. They are rather apparently than really so. Hence, it has been well said that when we see how much a man has, we envy him. But could we see how little he enjoys, we should pity him. Some that have had the most easy circumstances have had the most uneasy minds. Those who have acquired all they could wish, had their wishes been at all sane, have been led by the possession of what they had to be discontented because they had not more. Isn't that true? Do you not know people like this? Just a little more, and I would be more satisfied. Wealth is not equal to the blessing of God. Possessions are not equal to the blessings of God. When we ask for God's blessing, I'm not asking him, increase my income, increase my paycheck. It is not equal to that. Spurgeon goes on to talk about fame or reputation. That certainly must be a blessing of God, we think sometimes uncritically. Here's what he says. If you happen to have lived in obscurity and have never entered the lists for honors among your fellow men, be content to run well your own course and fulfill truly your own vocation. To lack fame is not the most grievous of ills. It is worse to have it like the snow that whitens the ground in the morning and disappears in the heat of the day. What matters it to a dead man that men are talking of him? Certainly the blessing of God must be that my name will be made known, that people will know who I am and be successful in my sphere. To which we say, no, 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 that's not equal to the blessing of God. How about health? Isn't that God's blessing if we are healthy? Spurgeon there's an incredibly unhealthy individual found that his, he has said it before, that there is no greater blessing than health save sickness. 
because sickness drives you to a chamber or a place where you meet with God that health does not allow. It's an incredible gift, he would say to you. Here's what he says about health being perceived as a blessing of God. He says, yet if I have health, my bones well set, and his, he was not healthy at the time. If I have health and my bones well set and my muscles well strung, if I scarcely know an ache or pain but can rise in the morning and with elastic step go forth to labor and cast myself upon my couch at night and sleep the sleep of the happy, Yet, oh, let me not glory in my strength. In a moment, it may fail me. A few short weeks may reduce the strong man to a skeleton. Consumption may set in. The cheek may pale with the shadow of death. Let not the strong man glory in his strength. And have you not seen that for people? Who within weeks all of a sudden are changed physically and things in a hurry and a flash go south. Are they all of a sudden not blessed of God? We cannot equate health with God's blessing. How about of a good home? And Spurgeon is all for a great home and speaks very highly of the beauty of home, but he also says this related to home and family. Do not let us be content to solace our souls with ties that must ere long be sundered. Again, 1850s. In other words, don't solace your soul, don't give comfort to relationships that someday will need to be gone. He goes on, let us ask that over and above them may come the blessing indeed. I thank thee, my God, for my earthly father, but O oh, be thou my father, then am I blessed indeed. I thank thee, my God, for a mother's love, but comfort thou my soul as one whom a mother comforteth, then I am blessed indeed. I thank thee, Savior, for the marriage bond, but be thou the bridegroom of my soul, I thank thee for the tie of brotherhood, but be thou my brother born for adversity, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The home thou hast given me I prize and thank thee for it, but I would dwell in the house of the Lord forever and be a child that never wanders wherever may, my feet may travel from my father's house with its many mansions. You can thus be blessed indeed. This is Spurgeon. This is 1850s, 1860s, but powerful, powerful teaching. That we dare not think that the blessing of God must mean that my family is just right and everything is incredible at home. This is not the blessing of God. To which you have to ask, what then is the blessing of God? To which Spurgeon summarizes it this way, and he says, Whatsoever leads thee to God in, is in like manner a blessing indeed. Whatever it is that leads you to God is the blessing indeed. Are you sick? Does it drive you to God? Consider that the blessing. Are you in need? Does it drive you to God? Consider that the blessing. Is your family falling apart? Does it drive you to seek God in his fullness? Consider that the blessing. What Jabez prays is, God bless me. But he leaves it up to God to decide how he's going to do it. It is no foolishness of this generation that Jabez prays. No foolishness of health, wealth, and prosperity, which is foolishness. That isn't the biblical worldview. Whatever drives me to God is indeed the blessing. And Jabez comes underneath the sovereignty of God to say, God, you bless me. I pray that you would indeed bless me, whatever that may be. And whatever it is in all of my circumstances that take me to the heart of the Father, that renew my love for God, this is the blessing indeed. The forgiveness of the cross of Jesus Christ, the comfort of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit that comes in a relationship with Jesus Christ is indeed the blessing. And this is Jabez's prayer where he begins. God, he says, 
bless me. Bless me. You do it in whatever way, in whatever shape, in whatever form you would want. And then he does go on to number two. Enlarge my territory. He says he looks out and the territory has been split among his brothers. And Jabez says, God, I would pray. I have something specific in mind. Here is a goal that I have. Here's an interest that I have. I pray that you would enlarge my territory. I pray that you would give me more space. And then he goes on, for God's hand to be with him. That your guidance, God, your direction, your nurture will be near to me. That I'll make decisions based on your direction. That your hand will be upon me. And then he finishes this prayer with this strange thing for God to keep me from harm. To keep me from pain. And that is weird. Because in the Bible we know that pain is a constant part of life. It just is. Jesus himself said that, uh, you know, foxes have their holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The pain, the harm, the difficulty of not having a home was real for Jesus. And so why is it that Jabez prays away from pain? Doesn't James, Jesus' own brother, say like it's through pain and trials that we grow? Isn't that what James 1 says in this? So what of this, Jabez? Should we pray that we would have pain all taken away? And here's what I believe is happening in the life of Jabez. Remember what his name means, pain. In the ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East, the mindset is this. What you are named identifies you and your character, and it explains part of your past with an anticipation of what your future will be like. In other words, once a pig pen, always a pig pen. Once a Jabez, always a Jabez. You've had pain before, you will always have pain and harm again. It's been hard for you to get things done. It will always be hard for you to get things done. There's a fatalistic view of your name, which is why it's so profound, by the way, when Jesus changes the name of the disciples when he meets them. Your name used to be, and now it is, boom. Changing of identity, it's incredible. I believe what Jabez is praying for here is, God, do not allow my past, the things that came along and associated with it, a pain and difficulty, to continue to be my story in the future. Take away that for me, that you would bless me indeed. And here's what we see happening. Number one, two takeaways for this. He asked for God's blessing, number one, not for man's. He didn't say, I want man's approval. I want the things that men value. I want that. He said, God, I want you to bless me first. I'm coming under that. And then he went on to say this. Excuse me. And then God actually granted his requests, to which I have to say, as this verse, verse 10 finishes, that God actually granted this request. So God determined this prayer was good. Whatever in the world it all means, God determined this was good, and because he granted the request, the proof is in the pudding, as they say. But God said, yes. I will bless you. Yes, I will enlarge your territory. Yes, my hand will be with you. And yes, I will keep you from the pain and harm that you're asking me for, Jabez. Yep, that's good. To which I say, if God grants that request, why in the world would I not consider praying that prayer? Why in the world would I not consider the things that Jabez has prayed for as proper and right for someone who's a follower of Jesus to pray as well? And so I'll say this now, and then I want to make a few more comments. If you're hoping for a bigger influence... Pray like Jabez, for yourself and for God's church. That God indeed would bless you in whatever way that means. And that this church, the church of Jesus Christ, would indeed be blessed in whatever way that God would so choose to do that. 
If I can share with you personally for a minute, not that I ever try to be impersonal, but um, I want to open up again a little bit more here to you about things that I process in my role here at the church. I want to ask you for something, and then I want to share with you. I want to ask you, would you pray for my leadership here? Would you pray for an increasing courage and vision here? Sharing with the elders... I think it was this past month. If not, I'll share it with you this coming month. But I think we've talked about this. About how I have noticed an increasing willingness and desire of this church to move forward in our community and beyond. Shown not the least of which is last week in a gift for Chip and his family and all of a sudden, boom, that need is met the end of the year and all of a sudden our end of year um, donations to so many people and so many people just blew my categories and expectations. And I, I have said that I don't know that I have led courageously enough in 2017. So I'm opening that, that little part of it. I just want you to know that in 2017, I look back and I think, you know, I, I believe that this church is actually more ready than we realize to see the influence of the gospel and the influence of a community that is pursuing the things of God go further in this community, further in our businesses, further in our schools, further in our homes, than we have, um, maybe I have even anticipated that God is ready to do. And so I'm asking you, would you pray like this for our influence as a church and for me as I serve in this role here at the church, that you would pray for courage, that you would pray for the vision that is greater than I even expect, because I believe that we are probably more ready than we realize to continue to see the hand of God move through this church and through people like you, people like me, in ways that we should expect, unless, unless we're afraid of success. Unless we're afraid, what if the spotlight is on me? What if the critics will come? What if I can't deliver, and what if I don't like what I become? What if I don't have the time, and what if I actually don't want the change that success brings? And so I want to ask you, pray for yourself in this regard. Consider whether, my proposition at the beginning that I want you to judge, is it an essential part of the Christian faith that we should desire increasing influence for the sake of the gospel? Or is it a secondary thing that only certain people have? Or is it something that every Christian should pursue and desire, no matter what it means? Or are we afraid of what success will actually mean? What I want to do next week is I want to go back to the Scriptures. I want to go back to a prayer of someone who encountered incredible success. And they prayed something very profound, very insightful that will help us anticipate what if God grants us success as a church? What if God grants you success as a mom, as a wife, as a husband, as a father, as a business leader, as a school classmate, as a teammate, someone in the choir, as someone who is involved in all that you're in? What if God grants you success in what you want? What then do you do and how then do you handle your faith? And that will be the topic for next week. Be glad to see you here. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help give us the courage that we need 
that we can be people who can handle your blessing, who can respond to this life in a way in which we draw our affections and our heart back to your loving heart for all people at all times to come to know you. I pray that you would help us to identify any areas in our life where we may be truthfully afraid of the change that has to come should our influence grow and should success actually come in our marriages, in our parenting, in our friendships, in our own personal choices and the habits that we have and the free time that we have in our own faith and our trust in you and our businesses and our schools in all the areas and all the sectors that make up a healthy community. Father, I pray that you would indeed bless us. And I'm asking you Father, to bless us as you see fit, to submit ourselves as a church here under your authority, under your blessing, and whatever way that means, we will say yes to you and submit to your leadership in this. So, Father, we are asking that you would indeed bless this place so that your name may be made known, that people will see the love of Jesus Christ specifically through this congregation through the influence that we have in all the sectors and all the places where we work and serve and engage throughout the week. May we indeed be a transforming presence in the town square for your glory and for the benefit of those around us. Give us the courage, I pray, to listen for where you call us higher and deeper and further so that we can respond accordingly. Father, we love you. And we pray for courage, we pray for strength. We ask it in Jesus' name.